0: Welcome to the Planet Pass Podcast follow-up show, powered by Elf Mutt VDS Racing. My name is Adam Wheeler. I'm joined by David Emmett and Neil Morrison. Uh, no, Steve English. Uh, he's on the road already. He's all got three back-to-back uh, World Superbike rounds coming up, so it is a busy time. Talking motocross, superbike, MotoGP. Uh, we're just ahead of round fourteen in the calendar. Spain, Aragon, of course, is in the rearview mirror. Uh, if race bikes had rear view mirrors and uh, of course we have Aragon uh, sorry Mazzano in Italy coming up this weekend uh, let's guys let's just talk about some of our moments um, from the Moto2 and Moto3 classes in Aragon uh, for me I have to say it was the the title challenges in the Moto3 class we saw a big mistake from Pedro Acosta his first of the season perhaps you could say it was coming He's the the kid has looked slightly, slightly ragged on the edge maybe like he's coping with the pressure of um, leading the world championship for maybe a few races now but uh, his accident and then of course Sergio Garcia been in it uh, while fighting for a podium position has really thrown uh, the championship into one direction and then back into another and uh, seeing Pedro Garcia Pedro Garcia Pedro Costa somewhat you know uh, forlorn in the pit box watching Sergio Garcia crash and then having a little kind of uh, knowing wink to the camera or even you know amongst his colleagues which I sure was caught quite candidly was uh, kind of splendid stuff and just revealed some of the the drama that's going on and that the little dispute for the Motor 3 championship so Neil was uh what was it that caught your eye from the weekend? Yeah I'd
1: like to go on the record and say that I was uh, fully on board with Pedro's reaction to that I know he got a bit of a, <laughs> he got a bit of um, a slidding from uh, certain commentators and uh, people saying that it wasn't really respectful but uh he's 17 years old and he's just basically uh got a got out of jail, got so, out of jail. yeah so i like that a lot yeah but i would say my favorite moment from Model two model three that was probably the reaction of um of dennis andrew um i'm actually quite a fan of, of dennis i think that first win for him was coming he really just narrowly missed out in the model three race and i liked his uh, his reaction in part for me where it was clear how just how gutted he was how I kind of badly had taken defeat, but he still said, uh, he still managed to get out a few uh, quite funny words. He said, uh, I'm angry about this and I'm even more hungry about it. So I think uh, everyone better be on their egg game Amazano this weekend to uh, to make sure that he's kept behind them.
0: David, uh, what was it that kind of tickled your fancy?
2: It was a fantastic race by Ralph Fernandez directly after surgery on his hand. Um, and you could see how much he was suffering all the way through. And in Park Firm A, you could see how much he was suffering to actually get that win. Um, but then in Park Firm A, his sunglasses sponsor tells him to keep his, uh, uh, means he keeps his sunglasses on. And they're <laughs> absolutely huge huge i think we mentioned this on the main show um but it's just so irritating if there is if there was ever a, chance, a time when you really wanted to see an athlete's face it's after he's done something like that you to be able to see what he's gone through to what he's put him through himself through uh, to produce such an incredible performance um, and really to get himself back into the race, uh, into the championship uh, fight as well. So just it was just really irritating them um, him keeping those absolutely massive uh, glass windows on.
0: Two things, Dave. Somebody's probably shouting at him, don't forget the glasses and the bonus check. And the second thing is, is maybe it's just the and professionalism because he's getting ready for that post-race uh, cycling warm down. Uh, that could be the, the thing, you know, maybe uh, in a couple of Grand Prix, he'll be strapping on the Lycra shorts uh, out of the leathers before he's even given his interview.
2: Uh, well, yeah, we, we won't be able to do that in Moto uh, in, in MotoGP, though, and if, if he's uh, getting ready to go to, up to MotoGP, he should be getting ready for his uh, debrief, um, his post-race debrief uh, with the, uh, us, the most important weekend uh, moment of the entire weekend when he um, spouts platitudes at, uh, <laughs> uh, at journalists such as myself. Let's
0: um, Nils uh, focus on Dennis Unchu for a moment. Let's talk a bit about him because he's in his second season in motor three, 18 years old. Uh, is it, Fair to describe him as arguably one of the emerging, brighter, exciting talents in the category and his position overall when it comes to Turkish road racing. I mean, of course, he was somewhat in the shadow of his brother after that amazing debut of Valencia for, for Chan, who's kind of almost vanished off the international map a little bit, uh, with full respect. And then, of course, you know, you have Top Rack in Superbike, who's also establishing his name as one of the leading lights in, in the international scene. So, where do we see Dennis? I mean, is he arguably Turkey's most most vivid, you know, or promising talent to come through.
1: Uh, I mean, you know, you'd have to look at Top Rack at the moment and what he's doing, and say that um, you know that's it's a, a pretty high bar. But I think that um, all these guys are managed by Kenan Swaffwogler. Obviously, um, they all train together and um, and kind of work together away from the track. And um, yeah, Dennis was speaking a little bit about this after the race on on Sunday, how watching Top Rack train, watching how Top Rack breaks. Obviously, he's breaking. Uh, capabilities are well known, well documented, Um these are things that that help Dennis when he's preparing for a GP. Um, and I think it was in um, in Austria that uh, Keenan and Toprock actually came to the MotoGP paddock to support Dennis, um, also catch up with Yamaha management and have a few talks there. But um, you know he's got a he's got a strong competitive little training circle around him, so uh, I think that works out well for him. And yeah, I would say that he's he's definitely one of the big the big talents coming through in the class. Um, yeah, there's a handful of obviously really fast young rookies uh, that have come through this year dennis is in his second year but um, i don't see any reason why dennis can not challenge for the championship next year i think he is building himself up really nicely um he's quite strong everywhere now i think and um yeah that first win i think is is only one or two races away
0: dave uh oh sorry just got across you there i mean Anchu took his first podium in Catalonia. He's now finished on the box twice from the last three rounds. And for the second time, he's led the majority of laps. I don't think that's something you can take too lightly in Moto3. I mean, if a rider has the potential to, I mean, he wasn't holding up the pack, was he? I mean, he was largely setting the pace.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was that was what impressed me most—the fact that he actually controlled that race. And I think it's one of those cases where he keeps on being really, really close to getting a win. And when he does finally get a win, a little bit like Pekka Baniya in the um, in MotoGP at Aragon, once he gets that win, I think that's when like it's going to be the bursting of the dam. Then all of a sudden he becomes a, it'll transform him, form him real. to. It's the final part of the jig sort of puzzle which he's going to need to to demonstrate. But the way that he controlled the race, and like you say, he wasn't holding them up. He was leading for, I mean, most of the laps, something like 13, 14 laps. Um, That was controlling the race. That was managing the race. And there were people dropping off the back. He wasn't sort of, you know, bunching everyone up and uh, and they were all catching up. So, yeah, he looks really, really fast and really mature.
1: Yeah, you look at um, the, the kind of stats from the season. And um, Dennis Foggi is the rider that's led the most laps in in Moto three this year. And um, Sergio Garcia is second, but Dennis Andres is the guy in third actually, and that's courtesy of him leading the majority of the Spanish Grand Prix, um, also in um, in Austria as well, where he uh, he led pretty much all of that race. And in Austria and in Aragon, you know, it was it was a fast pace. He he wasn't. Dallying around and messing up. He was basically trying to stretch the stretch the group consistently. Um, and uh I think it was just uh, the, the the ridiculous high speed of um of Dennis Fodges Leopard Honda, which seemed to have a little extra power boost button on the handlebars that he engaged on the final lap that um that stopped Dennis Onju winning this.
2: I said something about um Foggia's race on Twitter afterwards and uh, was immediately corrected by Peter Baum who said that team always seems to get a little bit of extra speed out of their, uh, out of that Honda. It, they are almost like the Honda factory team if you like. I mean they are, they they are the team which knows and understands those bikes best and gets the most out of them and they do sort of um, find a little bit of DRS whenever uh, whenever possible shock horror i made an f1 uh, reference
0: (laughs) just don't let it you know catch on let's not uh, try to repeat it too often i have a question that's maybe a bit tricky tricky to answer but what about the change we saw in in the moto three race because we went from uh you know a a completely dominant performance by romano fanati and silverstone where we saw two to three four riders maximum excelling Uh, back to traditional Moto3 fair in Aragon where we had a large group of up more than almost 15 riders right at the front I mean Aragon itself is you know the Moto Land's quite a technical track it's you know got a variety of corners it's not what you'd call a you know a typical kind of tow track so why why did we see the Moto3 reverting to type
2: Uh, I I it I would dispute that a little bit. For a start you've got a really long back straight which makes a difference. So you've got a place where you've where slipstream matters. The front straight is the same as well. But it wasn't um it wasn't like Qatar where you had 15 people all together and swapping places all the time. It was just um that it was 15 riders sort of strung out there were there weren't as many riders all contesting for you know that they weren't contesting for places every corner they were um and it was the best riders at the front for most of the race so i i think it was sort of a bit of a mixture between uh a sort of halfway house if you like between uh sort of austria silverstone and and qatar
1: yeah, exactly. And I don't think, um, I think it was only nine riders really, wasn't it? Like it wasn't, uh, it wasn't maybe one yeah. of those like races where it was half the grid basically, or, or even more than that fighting at the front. Um, and you know, the guys up at the front were all, were all genuinely fast. There wasn't just a great deal. One of those weekends where there wasn't a great deal to choose between, um, between the guys.
0: Gabriel Rodrigo, is he the current menace of the Moto3 class?
1: Yeah, he's not he has this thing where he puts a little run together of of decent top six finishes and you think like, Oh, you know, he's turned the corner and that old Gabriel Rodrigo has, has disappeared, he's put that behind him, and then he he just when he when he has a few bad results, he really does disappear down. A black hole. I mean, the end of last season, it was it was wretched, and at the moment, it's it's a similarly terrible run. You know, he took out two riders in um, in Austria, um and high sided himself out of the the last corner here. Yeah, I would say he's one of those guys. He's probably one of the one of the few guys in the grid where other riders maybe feel a little uncomfortable around him because he, he's pretty unpredictable.
2: Yeah, and he's nervous. It's just, I think it's mostly just nerves. He's so nervous, um, he gets himself really, really wound up. And when things go well, then he's fine. He's, you know, a bit of a a, a bit of a maverick Vinales, you might say. When things are going well, he's really, really fast. And when things sort of go wrong, then they go wrong really quite spectacularly. And he manages to make a complete mess of himself.
0: Let's just speculate for a second, talking about other riders in the category. But what about Darren Binder? Because throughout the first free practice sessions of the weekend. He looked like he would be, you know, odds on for adding a third podium to his tally for the year. Let's not forget the South African was, I think, uh, you know, he picked up his first two trophies in the first couple of rounds. Uh, Since then, it's been, you know, pretty much a tale of woe and also misfortune and bad luck. Is, you know, is his head being turned about concerning what he has to do next year and the opportunities that he has? Is some of the focus been lost? Uh, you know, the team obviously dissolving for next season as well. Uh, you know, do we think that the, the Patronus squad is, is I don't know, it's almost like uh, the Titanic in some respect is just slipping under the waves?
1: I think you could maybe make a point for that, yeah. Um, I mean, I think Darren has been, I mean, I tipped him for the championship this year, so I think his his performance has been a little under par, I was expecting more from him um but at the same time you look at the other side of the garage i mean john mcphee should be challenged for the championship this year as well and that hasn't happened um and yeah you just kind of wonder with um with with everything that's going on with with that team disappearing at the end of this year whether that is having a bit of a a knock-on effect with i'm not sure um, whether you would say uh, maybe with the equipment that they've got or, or maybe with um yeah. Or so. oh, updates at yeah, least, up, Well, all... you
0: know, in terms of yeah, ideas
1: or engineering or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it just would seem that um, it's not it's not all working out as as we expected it to. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's quite a puzzling one because you know Darren um, was on pole position, um, but just has lacked that little extra something that uh, that you expect of him um, at this point in his career.
2: I mean, it it does look like there is. Uh, an issue with um, with that team and that team is so much that you know there is a lot of chaos there Uh even in with Franco Morbidelli out, there's been swaps in and out of uh, the MotoGP team. Uh, there's been a crew teaspoon being swapped between riders. Uh, there's uh, problems with uh, money. There's problems with the future of the team that, that that team is finishing. And then on top of that, you've got Darren Binder's own future, which is completely unclear. So I think, yeah, that, that, there is a serious issue there. There is a serious or there is opportunity for distraction um, and it is really really difficult to stay focused when you're in a situation like that
1: yeah and, you know after it was announced that Patronus was pulling out and um, everyone well it seemed to be that with you one of their current sponsors was going to take on the mantle of the title sponsor in the mother GP class but um, for the team next year but it does seem that um, they might not even be staying with the team um, in 2022 so that's Another thing that um, they're having to try and juggle to try and find a title sponsor. Um, You know, it's, it's all a bit chaotic, just...
2: Yeah, and all of these things sort of filter down to the riders. As a rider, what you want to do is just be able to close off the world, a lot like we're seeing with Fabio Quartararo, where he exists entirely in his own little bubble and is able to perform. Um, and this seems to be the absolute opposite of that. There is so much chaos in the team, or, or and not even necessarily of their own making, just as, as a general... Um, yeah, just general mayhem due to very you know sponsors ch- changes sponsors leaving, all the rest of it, uh, and all of that means there's always an atmosphere in the team, and that that is really and, and worry. You know, everyone is going to be worried, all the mechanics are going to be worried because they don't know what they're doing next year. Uh, so yeah, it's it's just not conducive to performance.
0: Perhaps the issue or the concerns over title sponsorship is is prevented Yamaha from making any kind of announcements when it comes to the disappearing patronus you know setup. Uh, it's something that you think that there's not a great it doesn't seem like there's a great deal of stability there
2: no but i mean that team is going to continue next year Um, there will be something there um obviously they have the basic money from Dorna coming in uh they will be able to get some kind of money also it's important for Dorna the continuity of that so they will make sure that the team can continue uh, but they really need to get a sponsor together and th- that can be quite difficult um, especially it's also extremely difficult getting a sponsor or getting a sponsor involved when you don't have a rider for next year um, you know if you want to present this new project then you really need to be able to say right well, well these are these are going to be our riders now we know Dobby's going to be there that's good um then you've got to have your second rider who's going to be the second rider um when you're talking to sponsors they also want to know who that who that's going to be because they've got to be able to to see it as someone saleable to help promote their uh, you know their brand or their product which is well, why they are in MotoGP, gp you know, why they're in motorcycle racing
0: Yeah, it's easy to forget that, you know, perhaps the satellite team's biggest sponsor is in fact Dorna. I mean, they pay the fees to be able to lease the motorcycles. Um, They also ship everything around the world, uh, you know, for the flyaways and everything. So the costs faced by satellite teams are, of course, pretty big. Uh, to you know, contend an eighteen-round international world championship, but uh, you know it, it's uh, they, they they do have other support structures in place, and compared to other motorcycling world championships, that's uh, not not a luxury not everybody has. But um, let, let's move on a little bit to Moto2. Just, sorry, Neil, you want to say something just before we go.
1: Um, I mean, do we have any kind of opinions on uh, the uh, controversy that was being stoked by a certain Spanish journalist with regards to? The aspar team and uh, the lack of team orders that we saw towards the end of that race because i thought it was quite interesting um on the final lap we had Onju and foggia running up front garcia had a great opportunity to capitalize on pedro costa's mistake um yet i think there were three occasions on the last lap alone turn one turn five and was it into turn eight as well where basically he had contact with izan Guevara, his young teammate izan was obviously riding for his first podium but um, there was no kind of, uh, well, there was no, there was basically nothing in the way of the team saying to Ysand, look, you know, your teammate is riding for the championship. It might be wise to let him get on with his business rather than try and get in his way. And you wonder whether that was a part in Garcia getting a bit flustered, um, and then crashing on at turn 12, which obviously has a uh, huge repercussions for the championship.
0: Well, there's all sorts of factors involved there. Firstly, how do you effectively communicate with somebody who's right in the heart of a battle for a podium position if he's tucked right in behind the bubble and also trying to slip some, stream someone on, on the small start straight? The second thing is, you know, do you rely on Guevara's race awareness and situation aware, awareness? You know, is a late, teen, like a, a you know, a late teenager to be able to assess the situation and think, right, I've got to back off and give him some space. And the other thing is, you know, if you look at Sergio Garcia's quote in the official press release itself, uh, he was going for it. He wasn't thinking. He wasn't thinking. You know, I'm third. I'm fourth. uh, You know, I could get zapped here and end up seventh. He was pushing for the best possible result, and you you kind of have to admire that in one respect. But then, in another way, you've got to think, was that a little bit foolish? Yeah, but
1: he was pushing for a result because he was having to try and make up the gap that he had lost to the two Denises in first and second, because. His teammate had been kind of messing him around in the last lap. And I mean, I don't think it takes too much in the way of management to sit with the riders before the race and say, look, Izan, if there's a situation where Sergio's first and you're second, or he's third and you're fourth, don't mess him up too much. I mean, it's totally admirable that they that there were no team orders whatsoever. However, I just think when one of your riders riding for the championship, it might be wise to have a, a word in the ear of the teammate just to be like, look. Don't do this, lad.
2: Yeah, but I mean, he's a rookie. Um, He's having a really, really strong race. Uh, It's his home race. Um, There's just no way he's not going to go for it. It's not... Even if he, even if he was sat down beforehand and given an hour-long lecture on how to ride around Sergio Garcia, he's not going to take any notice of that. Don't be stupid. I mean, you know, he's he's, <laughs> he's thinking podium. He's just thinking. Aah! So of course he's going to do that. Uh, it, it's understandable. In this specific situation, um, I don't think there was anything that the team could have do, could have done about it, even if they wanted to. Uh, yeah, perhaps you should have tried, but I don't think it would have made a blind bit of difference. Um, I also think if, it was really interesting that we that you know Garcia crashes because he's under pressure. Um, uh, Acosta crashes also maybe because he's under pressure. I think we're really starting to see the pressure get to the two of them. They're really starting to feel the championship getting closer. Uh, And uh, I mean, like Acosta's crash was uh, really, it was just a stupid one. It's just very bad. You know, you shouldn't make those mistakes when you're leading the championship because there's no need to, especially when you're leading it relatively comfortably. Um, And then uh, Sergio Garcia's uh, uh, crash was... uh, Worse, I don't know. Also, just really bad because he's pushing. There's no need. Third is fine. Third is plenty. Um, when your when your rival is making has just made a massive mistake, the first thing to do is to capitalise on that mistake. Not try and uh, not try and win because you know sixteen points would have been a nice chunk to get back on uh, on Pedro Costa, and now he's got zero back.
0: Yeah and also I think if um, Garcia looks at the standings then he's going to see two big fat zeros for the last rounds and that's enough to make you sweat I would have thought if you're trying to chase a, a championship bid. I mean the same for Acosta he could see that zero and think mm, you know I'm going to need to fix that in the next race in, in Misano. I, I haven't studied any previous form but it's uh, when it comes to the Italian track but You know, I wonder who's going to come out on top. I mean, another quick point, Dave, is that we have four different brands in the top, you know, in the top four positions in the championship, even though they are effectively only two different kinds of motorcycles and the only one being uh, the only Honda being fodgier in third place. Yeah, and speaking to Foggia
1: after the race, he was uh, he was absolutely adamant that he really has a chance to championship. No, I mean, he's 58 points back, but you look at his form and you would definitely say that it's him, not uh, Garcia or Acosta, that uh, is the man really in form at the moment. I mean, it makes you wonder why didn't we see this sooner from Dennis. Um, it's clear that he is rubbish in the rain. Um, so France was obviously no score uh stereo is a no score but he's basically two no scores in the Qatar races then no score in a rest I mean that was just totally perplexing and puzzling still don't quite understand what went on there but you have to say um from his win in Italy he's been he's been really good and he's not been that kind of crazy up and down rider that um that has sort of been apparent uh, in his GP career I mean he's been on the podium the last three times he's had I think six podiums from the last eight races um three wins overall put him than anyone else, Moto Three this year. I mean, Fodger is definitely looking like the uh, the strongest guy in the second part of the season.
2: Yeah, I mean, he's uh, what is it, fifty eight points? That is a lot in five races, um, but it's not impossible if Acosta and Garcia is uh, keep making mistakes. And I think also, like momentum is starting to become important. Um, but I think also, uh, if, you were, if you were ever 50 point, 58 points back with five races to go, you would want it to be to a rookie um, who is uh, on his way to uh, with, with his first chance of winning a championship. So, yeah, I, I, I don't think it's impossible. I think, um, I think he really has a chance. And obviously, you know, two races in Misano, that's got to be very good for, um, uh, for, for Foggia. It's, it's a circuit he knows. It's a circuit. It's his own race. Uh, he's going to do well. Um, but to come back to uh, Sergio Garcia, forty-six points. You know, crashing out, it would have been thirty points behind uh, uh, Pedro Acosta if he if he hadn't crashed out. If it had just accepted, settled for third, um, that's such a different proposition to forty-six points. You know, thirty, 30 points is um, in five races. That's six points a race. That's that's eminently doable, especially in Moto Three. Uh, if uh, Acosta had one more bad race, th- th- it would be close to being level. But now forty-six points—that's a lot.
0: Yeah, split by a Valentino Rossi. Uh, it's not such a you know a small points gap at all. Forty-six. It's uh, for, for me. I think it's pretty much over. I mean, I can't see Garcia pegging that back. Then, of course, like you say, Dave, anything could really happen, and, and we'll see in Misano. I think will be the next instalment of this chapter and it's, yeah, of this uh, story. And let's see if it gets any kind of more interesting. Before we talk about some of the heroics from Ralph Fernandez, a little bit of news. We saw the announcement, of course, for Augusto Fernandez joining the Red Bull K-Team Ayo team along with Pedro Acosta for 2022. And I think Sam Lowe's, will, his contract was renewed as well as part of the Mark, uh, Elf, Mark VDS team. Um, what were our views on that? I mean, I guess the news with Sam is not that surprising. Uh, he, you He know, started the season so strongly, maybe a little bit disappointed not to be closer to the title fight. And then, of course, uh, you know, his teammate moving across potentially is that uh you know it's a strange kind of transfer is it? i mean Fernandez is saying that he wants to make the final step um in his career development after f- i think it's five seasons in Motor 2 to try and really go for the championship but he's leaving arguably one of the strongest teams in Motor 2 to go to what is the currently strongest team in motor 2
1: yeah, I think uh, I think that's fair. Like, um, you know, if Fernandez can't make it work next year, then um then some serious questions will have to be asked. It's been uh it's taken him uh, basically a season and a half to, to get up to um the form we expect of him in uh, in the Mark Fidius racing team. And as we know, you know, if if you're kind of doing like a hierarchy of, of teams in Model Two, there's probably two or three at the at the very top and Mark VDS are are definitely in there. Um and it's just for one reason or another, it just hasn't kind of worked out. I mean, Augusto, I think, had a, had a good race um, in uh, in Aragon. Um, you know, he gained 11 positions. I think he was 14th on the first lap and came back to third. He's, he's had a good second half of the year so far. Um, but, um, yeah, I'm not sure about whether he'll be able to, to get up and, and, and actually take on the likes of, of Gardner and, and Ralph and it is this year. It's a big one. I mean, Aki Ayo obviously had a, a really transformative effect on, on Remy Gardner. He's just become a, a really standout rider now. The same can be said for Ralph Fernandez. Is doing just ridiculous things. Um, and you have to say that a lot of that is to do with uh, Aki Ayo's tutelage, his leadership, um, and, and and how he kind of manages riders one-to-one. Um, so, obviously, it's, a, it's an interesting proposition, I think, for any rider to go there. But, yeah, big pressure on Augusto because he has to perform.
0: Dave, um, it was surprising in Aragon to see Sam Lowes crash out. Um, also, Marco Bezzecchi. We're talking about the points gap in Moto Three. Uh, despite those DNS for the riders, it's still pretty close. You know, when it comes to, it's closer than Moto Three, that's for sure. I mean, Marco Bezzecchi third in the championship, still thirty three points adrift. Of, uh, no, sorry, seventy two points. So it is, for, it is, is much more. It's thirty three behind Ralph Fernandez now, um, and Sam Lowes, of course, one hundred and twenty four. I mean, that's that's miles off. I mean, that's. I mean, he he's chances of the title were extremely faint anyway before going to Aragon now it's uh it's almost mathematically done isn't it so um you know but again you know these two riders you think they get into the point of the season where they're thinking right do I get my top three top five championship bonus or are they kind of you know just throwing caution to the wind and trying to bank the wind bonuses I mean it's what kind of mentality do you think we should be seeing from these guys
2: well, I mean, like, you know, obviously Gardner and Fernandez are still going for the championship. Um, they're still in contention. Uh, I think uh, Bezeki has almost ruled himself out. And you know, uh, Sam Lowe still has a theoretical chance of the uh, championship. However... Uh, he can only win if Remy Gardner doesn't score another point and Sam wins all of the rest of the races Uh, and uh, uh, what is it and Raul Fernandez also has uh, you know only managed to score a handful of points in the rest of the in the rest of the races so I think we can write that one off Uh, Bezecchi, I mean it's more theoretically possible but still he's a he's a complete outsider Uh, I I think the mistakes by both of them were um, uh, pretty bad um you know you shouldn't you shouldn't be crashing in the these sort of circumstances i did i did think there were a, quite a lot of crashes in both in motor 3 and motor 2 and i think the the heat and the greasiness and the fact that the track is uh, um aragon hasn't been resurfaced since they started using it which is over 11 years now um the track is actually if, for a track that is so old, it's in really good condition. There's very few bumps, despite the fact that they race a lot of cars there. Uh, I think F1 does a little bit of testing there from time to time. Um, so you would think it'd get, it, it would get rippled, but it doesn't. Um, however, just with age, the tarmac is really starting to lose a little bit of grip. It's still perfectly rideable. Uh, it's just that there's less grip. And I think when the pressure starts, then people can crash out more often.
0: Yeah, I think it was Brad Bindu who said there was no concerns really about the the, the grip level of the asphalt. I mean, of course, when MotoGP went there last year, it was a month later. So it was a little bit further, you know, towards the autumn time. But uh, yeah, that's quite remarkable, like you say, from the construction in 2009 uh, up until now, not having to be resurfaced when we see some circuits on the calendar, uh, riders or the safety commission clamoring for a, a resurfacing job, you know, which cost of course, several million euros to happen every couple of years. So, uh, you know, full credit to the people who laid out the, the, the stuff and Motorland.
2: Yeah, a lot of it is down to the substrate. So, the, basically, the the geology underneath it. So, for example, Kota, the problem there is that is uh, I have understood from talking to people is that it's built on this. Uh, uh, I think it's uh, the, there's like a layer of chalk there or something which keeps subsiding. It, it's very it, it's very uh, um, susceptible to subside, subsidence, especially it's like there's a water course which runs through uh sort of several i don't know 50 or 100 meters below but it's just enough for it to cause a, quite a lot of movement in the or relatively an amount of movement in the ground whereas aragon is completely flat completely stable uh, there's no real motion uh, there's no motion in the ground the um it's a very solid uh, it's a very solid uh, uh, substrate um so yeah th- there's no movement underneath and they did they just did a really really good job in actually laying that uh uh, the, sort of surfacing that uh, the, that circuit and, and making it billiard smooth because it's still really, really smooth. It's just that, you know, there's not so much a... It might actually be a really bad idea to resurface Aragon because the track, you could end up doing a worse job with the surface and, and pulling it up and, and, and introducing ripples and bumps and all the rest of it.
0: Neil, just before we talk about Ralph Fernandez and that unexpected win, uh, Remy Gardner, I think he posted his 10th podium of the season, uh, two races before he had finished off the podium, but he's bounced back with a win in the second place. Uh, that's, you know, that's good. That, that's, that's kind of title, you know, potential there, isn't it? I mean, that's uh, he's he's on course.
1: He is on course, yeah. Uh, I think he was coming into this weekend thinking that um, it was going to be a lot tougher than it was. Um, Aragon, for some reason, just isn't really one of his his favourite layouts. Um, and you could see in the first laps, he was having a real tough time as Lowe's and Fernandez got away at the front. Remy just did not have that pace and he was fighting a bit with uh, Agura and Garzo getting buffed around a little bit and you thought this could maybe turn into a bit of a tough one um but he kept his composure he recovered third and then gained second from uh from Lowe's question on so um it was a yeah I would say just a very absur- uh, assured performance Um and, and certainly afterwards he was talking about it as though it was like a victory Um there were more strong tracks to uh to come for Remy um in the coming weeks and Aragon wasn't one of them so to come out having lost just five points to his championship rival even if his championship rival was in uh far from uh, ideal physical condition. Um, I think, yeah, it's, it's just another, you know, all year Remy's just said, get points. That is the, that's the aim of the game, just collect points and finish well. And uh, if you look at the season as a whole, one seventh place was the standout bad result. And if you're looking at that one seventh place across the course of a season and thinking that was a, a particularly bad day and that was that was <laughs> almost a disaster, then I think you, could, you can count yourself as having a, a very strong run of races indeed.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, you can ju- just looking at the run, run of results, you can see exactly where uh, Raul Fernandez lost the championship. He has two blanks, you know, like he has two DNFs. So uh, two zeros means you are not going to win the championship, um, especially when Remy's consistency has just been absolutely phenomenal, just really, really strong.
0: Lastly, the race winner, Ralph Fernandez. what's our view on this? Because, you know, I think he made a comment something like five laps before the end of the flag. He couldn't break properly. Uh, you know, he was clearly struggling. He was suffering, as you'd expect from, you know, an injury of that nature. But... Was it, I'm always a little bit suspicious. I mean, was it over-egged? I mean, was it kind of uh, exaggerated a little bit more? Because I don't think you could break your hand and and suffer quite a serious injury like that and then be able to manage 21 fast and furious laps and murder an Aragon at that pace and be able to win. Um, I do often wonder whether these things are, even whether it's gamesmanship or a little bit of a psychological thing, that they're really kind of ramped up to, you know, 11 out of 10 kind of thing.
2: It can be, and certainly it has been uh, at times. But the difference is that, you know, Raul took over the league quite early on, and it's much, much easier to ride uh, or to manage an injury like that when you can just ride your own tempo ride your own pace a bit like we said about uh, you know fabio in, in in silverstone you don't have to ma- you don't have to worry about managing other riders you just manage yourself uh, and so you can try and gain the uh, gain gain time w- where you can and then reduce the, the the losses due to whatever weakness you might be having in this case Raul's um uh, Raul fernandez is sort of he's uh, metacarpal his hand uh, that allowed him to manage it. And then sort of by the, that meant that by the end of the race, he had enough to be able to lose. So he could, he could like ease off enough, to 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 get to the finish and still have plenty in hand so uh, you know because he lost a he, he lost a fair amount in the last uh, in the last couple of laps so um or well a fair amount he was definitely a little bit slower in those in those last couple of laps so he was having to ease off a little bit but it is much easier when you're having to when you're riding on your own than it is when you're having to battle other people when you, you know, I think if, uh, Remy had been with him for much of the race, then it would have been a completely different story because he would have been forced into breaking where he doesn't necessarily want to break, breaking harder than he, than he might want to break, not being able to manage that. those sort of forces.
1: Yeah, I think um, it was it was pretty impressive. Like, I think he had uh, he went under the knife with Dr. Mir, um the previous Sunday, so it was just essentially I think uh, nine days since he sustained the injury. Um, but he kind of said hi. He had just tried to limit the, the the amount of running i mean it wasn't as if he was sitting in his box all session but um, he wasn't exactly sitting at the, the highest number of laps in each in each audience um he was trying to manage the distance that he covered across the weekend and save his uh save his strength for the race but i mean he was he was fast all the time um you know took some painkillers um but i mean no one i don't think anyone could have expected him to be that fast um it was uh, it was it was just ridiculous
2: you can only afford to sit in your box when you know that your bike is good and everything is fine and you don't have to work, work with any setup. So, uh, you know, that the fact that that team is so good, that bike is so good, everything works, that's what gives him the opportunity to rest his hand during free practice.
0: Now that we've established that, the, you know, the championship is pretty much coming down to these two riders, as it kind of has been heading in that direction for most of the season, uh, a little double barrel question for you. Which of the two would you like to see win it? And then which of the two do you think is going to make more of an impact in MotoGP straight away next year?
2: God, that second question is really hard. Um, God, Dave, just you know, slap I, it out on the table. I think that... Uh, I mean, I, I would like to see... I think Remy deserves it because Remy has really proved himself. Raul Fernandez has done a phenomenal job this year, absolutely. Uh, but Remy really proved... Remy has ridden a championship the way you're supposed to ride a championship and race for a championship. He's won when he could and when he couldn't, then he made sure he got the points and he always finished. So that's I mean he deserves this championship most of all. I think he's also going to make the most impact immediately. I think he's a, he's these past couple of years he's gained the maturity and the and the intelligence and the calmness to really make a difference so I think uh, and it's also going to be who fits into that team best and I think um uh, you know Remy's already been uh, ridden from a, for, for Hervé Poncharal, so I think it's less of a less of a step for him
0: yeah I'm going to answer my own question and I agree with you Dave I mean almost 50% of Remy's podiums have been victories this year so it's not like he's uh, kind of squeezed in just through a low rate of consistency uh, Ralph Fernandes of course has picked up two DNFs has perhaps been the more spectacular of the two you could say but there seems to be a, a much brighter spotlight on him um, that much more pressure all the talk about his Contract as well. Um, I think Gardner has uh, paid his dues. He's he's gone. He's, he's paid his education in Motor Two. He's ridden with Honda engines. He's ridden with Triumph engines, um, and that's why again I agree with you. I think he'll be. He'll have more of a. Um, I'm not sure a technological kind of feeling to be able to, you know, cut his way through in in MotoGP.
1: I think also you have to take the stature into consideration. Uh, Remy's the the heaviest guy in Moto Two. I think he's given something like eleven kilos away to his uh, his closest rivals, uh, certainly to to Fernandez. That's quite a lot in uh, in a class where you're using standard engines and, and basically standard everything. Um, no, my. Colleague Simon Criff, our colleague Simon Criff, has has mentioned for a long time that it's clear the way Remy rides, the way he's aggressive on the brakes, uh, that his style will be more suited to the bigger MotoGP machine. Um, So I'm really intrigued you look at this year though, and you see how quickly Raul is adapted to the moto two bike. You can see how much talent there is there. I really don't think there's going to be a lot to choose between the next year as well. Um, I'm really intrigued to see how that, uh, how that unfurls, because, you know, it's, uh, you know, whoever ends Valencia with, with the more points is, um, you know, is obviously won this year's championship. Uh, however, this is something that is going to run this kind of inter team battle is, is going to continue running for the next, uh, the next two years. Um, and is going to, you know, make one of them into possibly a, a real, a real superstar MotoGP.
2: I think, uh, ironically, uh, even if Remy wins the championship, he's going to be under less pressure, um, precisely because of Raul Fernandez's stellar sort of 2021. He's, you know, his, his rookie Moto 2, 2 campaign expectations are going to be absolutely through the roof for him, especially in Spain, uh, going up to MotoGP um whereas you know Remy'll just be a Moto2 champion on a bike we've expected him to get a MotoGP we expect him to go through a learning process um it it's almost sort of counter counterintuitive that, that there'd be less expectations on him. But I think um, uh, a lot of the focus is going to be on uh, Raul Fernandez. And I think that th- that's going to be good for Remy and make it easier for him to, to adapt. But I'll tell you what, it's a very, very tough class to come into right now, MotoGP, because there's so many good riders.
0: We've, uh, obviously given our opinion here on the pallet pass podcast, but if you are following us on Twitter or you're messaging us in any other kind of social media format or of reacting to Patreon or whatever, please uh, send us your comments and your opinions as well. Uh, we're going to endeavor to record a, a pallet pass podcast note show from Thursday, which is tomorrow, uh, from Mazzano. So if you have any burning questions, particularly for this weekend, then we'll endeavor to answer them. But now that we're suitably preheated guys, um, you know, how do we feel about Michelin being, you know, uh, the tire supplier for the next 5 years in MotoGP? I mean, there's some engineers that may be uh, slightly disappointed with the news, a couple of riders may have a few grumbles of course, some of the inconsistencies that we've seen throughout 2021 with the the quality of 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 the race rubber. Uh how do we feel about, you know, the French firm continuing?
2: I uh, I think it's the best thing for it. Uh, I I like the Michelin's. I think Michelin have done a really good job in terms of they producing good racing. Dorna will be delighted with them because of the racing which, you know, the, together with the spec electronics and the changes to which they've made to make sure that everyone is more or less on equal machinery, um, it's produced really, really good racing. Um, they're quite safe tyres. You don't see big high sides. When we had the the Bridgestones, what what you had was a really excellent front tyre and a bit of a shonky rear tyre, and that, meant that it was really easy to high side because the rear just wouldn't grip it uh, it would sort of spin up um grip and then spit people off Uh, it pretty much um you know it pretty much ended Hiroshi Aoyama's career at uh, Silverstone you know a, a cold more a cold morning high side um and arguably similar conditions were the were the course of the crash in which uh, Valentino Rossi broke his leg. Uh, you know, cold, unseasonably cold weather, the rear doesn't grip and he crashes. So um, I think it's better. There are real uh, quality control issues. I wonder if that has something to do with the supply chain issues, which are just plaguing everything. You know, if you want bicycle parts, if you want uh, a motorbike, i uh, um, uh, oh let's anything. not
0: start with this subject again if we, we, we all want a motorbike dave we all
2: <laughs> well no but i mean it, it, literally uh, if you if i ordered a triumph it would take me you know sort of three or four months to get it just because the, 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 they're waiting around for shipping containers and all the rest of it so um the, 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 there are seri- there are still serious problems there so perhaps that's ha- had an effect um I think also a lot of the complaint is also about the fact that Michelin has to supply a list of tires at the beginning of the season. That's got to be good for uh, all of the races. Uh, you know, you've got no idea what the weather's going to do throughout the year. Um, it's got to be a nightmare to try and plan that. But that was a request to the teams, the teams and the factories. They want that, uh, so it's on them if they if they turn up and Michelin don't have the right tire because it's unseasonably freezing or unseasonably hot. Uh, so yeah the, the, um, the teams bring that one on themselves um, it, I, I would really like to see Michelin bring that front tyre which they've been promising you know one with more support which will give, make braking a little bit easier I think that will create a, a slightly different dynamic in the in the field as well but they are they've made the racing exciting so um, I'm all for that Neil would you have
0: liked to have seen a change I mean it would have reset MotoGP GP. But then also, you know, maybe like Dave says, there needs to be a call for a slight rearrangement of the allocation process. I mean, what's what's your thoughts? Yeah, maybe
1: the, the allocation process might need to, uh, to be studied um, a little more in depth um, with years to come. Um, but I don't think there is any need for a great change. I mean, we have a, a pretty spectacular spectacle at the moment. We have ridiculously close racing. We have great variation. Um, yes, not every allocation is maybe the right one um and and this needs to be fine-tuned but in terms of the, the kind of uh you know midzland's jobs that they've done i think um you know they've played a, ho- a huge role in um, in what we've seen over the last six years so um yeah uh, i think it's uh, i think it's good news that they're continuing
2: uh, 13 races 12 riders on the podium uh, eight different winners uh, all six manufacturers on the podium i mean you know w- what's not to like
0: yeah good point dave and plus it's a very cute Kind of uh, large, bulbous man uh, made of tires. Uh, you know, looking like he's got ripples of fat. So it's you know, <laughs> we can all relate to that. So that's great. They'll
2: always, they'll always be as long as Bibendum's in the paddock. there will always be someone fatter than me. <laughs> As
0: mentioned, uh, join us. We'll be doing a quick at pass podcast note show special uh, on Thursday. Just uh, taking in, you know, some of the hype around Andrea De Vizioso returning to uh, MotoGP and some of the talk uh, emanating from Mizano on the first day of uh, not really action, but hype, I suppose you could say. Other than that, thanks ever so much for listening to us on this follow-up show. Uh, we've been fueled, powered, uh, as we've mentioned, by Mark VDS Racing. So big thanks to those guys. And uh, we will be speaking to you again very shortly. And, of course, don't forget to catch the weekly show next week where we'll be talking about what happened in Misano. Uh, Steve English will also be updating us from the latest uh, action at, at Catalunya for, for World Superbike. Thanks again.
2: This episode of the Panic Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.
0: I'm going to say, from Aragon, my first kind of moment of the weekend was... uh, you know, the Moto3 title, fuck, you know what? I think I'm going to start this podcast again because it was terrible. <laughs> Sorry to our American yeah. brethren who are listening it, to this, but it, we're going to start
2: again. Right. Mean, almost, I'm making a note of when to start it, from. It, so it almost sounds uh, as
1: yes. if you've just been like on the road for the last couple of days. Uh, <laughs> you know, I you know, mate. I know.
0: And literally, before I did this, I've just dashed in from the supermarket. So prep time is zero. <laughs> okay, right. Start again. Start again. Welcome to the Paddock Past Podcast. Notes for no, it's not a note show.
1: Oh, flow cool up show. Yes, just uh, you can write write it down. Uh, I always find that useful.
0: No, I'm going to get it now. Super. Oh, fucking terrible!
2: That was actually quite a good show, apart from the fact that it took you five times to get started.